27th of September 2000 Well, hello and uh, thank you for joining me for another Sunday Sessions. Uh, this is our weekly time for exploring nature-based uh, or nature-centered folklore connecting this mindfully within your favorite tree or garden sanctuary, and then expressing your inspired visions through your writing, poetry, art, craft, performance, problem solving, however you express yourself. Now, today's Sunday session is one of the four OM sessions that I host, and uh, this is going to be the OM Stone story. And uh, there's a bunch uh, together there. And today's guests and features, uh, we've got uh, Linda Rosewood, uh, who's you can say hello to here. There we go. There's Linda. Hello. <laughs> we'll be having Linda a bit later. And uh, Denise Terry, who unfortunately she can't be live. She's got family have arrived. So and we didn't do a pre-recorded. So I'll be uh, reading her feature. And uh, they've come here for a connect to continue about apples because there are. Uh, Apple festivals that are on, the Clonmel one, I think it's their last day, been very active. Unfortunately, the Organic Center one, because of the COVID, uh, was canceled. I think Drama Hair had theirs yesterday, and there may well be Apple festivals and celebrations near you. Anyway, this is not, we did Apples last week, and it's nice to do a little addendum uh, this week as well. But uh, before, uh, Linda comes up, and before I share Denise, uh, this is really about Ormstone stories. And uh, we got, I'm going to be covering the uh, medieval carved stones uh, there, and uh, the pre-medieval carved stones, these sort of wonderful, very old ones, and uh, their folklore, uh, also their modern kind of uh, pagan myths. And then we're going to go on to the post-medieval and you just see there, they, they look uh, a bit different for a start. They've been carved on the outside. And uh, with the post-medieval Ohm stones, we're discussing why were they made. They were actually cut until the 1930s. Uh, so what was their purpose? What was the change? Anyway, uh, let's uh, see. Uh, I see some of you have come on board. And uh, here we go. Hi, Donna. Uh, brilliant. Thank you for joining in a uh, loyal supporter from new mexico lovely uh thank you and uh that's just that's it you're on all right great thanks very much uh okay let's get going with the medieval uh the medieval carved owen stones and uh, i've got i'm just lining up a bunch of pictures for you for that uh thing with those, uh, with the Orm, two subjects in the Orm realm always seem to pop up uh, when I start talking about Orm on any Sunday session. You may remember way back in March, I tried to do them all in one session, and I really had to cut it up. And I thought, okay, we can have a nice, quiet, short one just with the Orm Stone story, but I have a feeling there's going to be quite a bit of content with this, so I hope you, I trust you will enjoy it, as you usually do on Sunday sessions. Now, one is the tree wisdom, 
entry, uh, the language of the trees, how that entered into the Orm alphabet uh, and its language. And the other thing that's always considered, people talk to me about the Orm stones being uh, a place of sacredness. And uh, they talk about the sacred Irish trees. And I will be touching on some of the issues with this, uh, with the, the Orm, obviously, we're talking about, but the folklore, the tree folklore behind that, and also the connection to the tree law, the tree-based law, the Brehan law. So I'll be covering that a fair bit. Uh, one thing that's interesting is, um, well, before, is the actual name Orm. Where does that actually come from? What does that actually mean itself? It may be something you consider when you use Orm in your own way as part of your personal divination. And anyway, divination and tree wisdom are going to be separate Sunday sessions that's down the road. Uh, but I'm going to introduce a little bit of that shortly, and because it does help to connect the dots. But I'm going to try and stick to the stones as much as possible. You know how I go on. Anyway, let's go on to the word Orm. Oh, you and I've got an actual spelling here. There you go. I think this is it. There you go, Orm. Oh, Yum, that's how it's, uh, well, this is how the scribes first said it when people pronounced it. And what that means, you get the O, the O-G, that means, really is a description of cutting a seam, cutting a line with a sharp weapon. They always call them weapons, even though it should have been farming tools. But there was a transition uh, to weapons at, at this point. By the time we got to medieval, what were farm tools were weapons. Uh, it was when the Iron Age had got into full thrust and the production of iron tools was quite abundant. And then uh, you've got uh, the Ulm, uh, which now the actual Ulm itself, um, you know, I totally forgot what that uh, part of it is, is... Uh, no, rolling the memory round, molding the memory round. The actual O is really the sort of burning of the cut. And the actual cut itself, that's the Orm bit. That, that's the general um, thing. And uh, it's said that the Orm was started up by Omer. And I, you may be familiar with my Omer tale of the trees. And uh, Omer himself. He said that he started off with a sign language, that he used the ten fingers and he did crisscrosses. And then somehow perhaps he put, cut sticks, uh, cut wood. It's not known. It's very much a folklore that's in the hands of the storyteller. But uh, even in his uh, name, the Og or Ak uh, actually means to cut. And... Um, a story, a couple of storytellers I've heard, they've said that one of the Orma statements, of course it wasn't recorded down unless it was actually recorded in the Orma itself, that it was a form of duplicated language because before families had their own grunts and groans, their own language, but they couldn't talk to their next door neighbors. So there were hundreds, if not thousands of languages, all due to the various families. So Orman took that challenge. How do you unify a language so people can speak to one another? But of course, not everybody wanted to learn it. And uh, it said that people that learned the Orm, uh, whether it was called Orm then, uh, was of learned people. 
and that set them apart from the rustics. And of course, we've had that ever since, that division of the, the so-called learned and wise ones and the people of the lower echelons. But that's the way we describe it again. So there we go. Um, Omer himself, excuse me, I might get a drink going very dry again. Get this at the beginning of every Sunday session, didn't I? So I so said the Omer was short for Omak, son. Now on the Ormstones, I might be able to get that to you, but uh, when you've got inscriptions on the uh, stones, you don't get Mac, you get Macca, M-A-C-C-A, -A, uh, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. For some reason, you don't get the women on the stones. I don't know why, uh, but there again, we were into medieval where the patriarchal forces were very much in abundance uh, from that time. Uh, but storytellers to me have, have said that his full name was Ormaxolus, uh, which means that he was the cutter of the light. Uh, so take that as you mean. Uh, this is all really about imagination. But it's interesting that Macca, M-A-C-C-A, because just even thinking of Paul McCartney today, what's his nickname? Macca. And a lot of Macs that I know, Macca. And it goes back, uh, I don't know if Paul McCartney's friends have seen Ormstones and saw Macca, but anyway, uh, there you have that, the, the Mac, which is a very important inscription on Ormstones. Now, there's two questions I'm going to explore. Why carving on stones in the first place? And why medieval? Because the Orm on stones really started to appear through medieval times. So I'm going to jump to the medieval first. And as you may fam be familiar, the early medieval was a time of the Dark Ages. There were wars around the world and clans were expanding and they were trying to find and expand their new boundaries and get the new... Uh, acquisition of more forest to get more wood to make more charcoal to make more iron foundries and and so forth so there was there was a lot of bickering and battling going on and when there's bickering and battling the one thing that falls apart is education and even scribing itself uh, there were symboled languages in the middle east and uh, china uh, japan in many countries they did have an incredibly well-formatted language, but with the battling, this was all starting to fall apart. Even the Romans with the Latin, quite well-formed, but once they had gone from Britain, suddenly Britain didn't really have a, a writing language. So there was, with battling, there's no time to teach it or pass it down because the priority itself uh, was battle. Um, so let's, uh, I should have been showing you pictures of that, again, sort of carried away. Uh, and I got some lovely pictures of old uh, students here. Um, there's uh, there's a uh, thinking of the Yorm. There we go. We got the definitely cut lines in that one. That's actually at the um, Heritage Museum down near Wexford, that one. Uh, but it is a genuine Owen stone that they got and put in place. They didn't make that one. And so we got the, the medieval education here and... Uh, Perhaps this is the way it was uh, in Ireland, and perhaps they were just sitting around like this in uh, in Britain as well. So Ireland became a saviour for establishing and preserving the culture of the scholar. But when the Saxons started reducing their squabbles with each other, 
things started changing dramatically. Um, the Saxon tribes who were battling with each other with their different beliefs, different ways of living, they started to unite with one another through uh, Christianity, we would say today, Christianity. Uh, it was because they were getting teachings about the Gospels and the Psalms, which was associated uh, with music. And that was all thanks to the Welsh. The Welsh never let go of Christianity once the uh, Romans left. They held on to it, and they held on to that language. And even though uh, they had been pushed into the hills by the Romans, they came out of Wales and they went over the Anglo area, and then in come the Saxons, pushed them back up into the, the Welsh mountains again, but eventually integrated back with these Saxons uh, through the teaching and there was the uniting of the uh, Christianity. Do I have something on that? Yeah, the, uh, oh, that's a pig stone. Um, right. Um, now, what became of Britain became another realm of scholars, and uh, as I say, as the, uh, the world kept fighting. Now, early medieval, we're talking about a time from St. Patrick in Ireland, or, uh, and through the times of Breda, and St. Bridget, Column Keel of the 6th century, and then on to the 9th century before the Norse people arrived in their droves and changed everything again. But during that uh, 5th century and that 9th century, it really was a time of language revolution, which I tend to relate to very much like the digital and PC revolution that we're going through now that we have done since the 1980s. You think um, people were starting to get their personal computers in their homes, their trash, when, trash 80s, their Apple IIs, uh, their, um, oh, what, oh, I'm trying to think of the one that, that was great for the music, um, begins with C. I used to have one myself, but I can't think of it now. Um, I don't remember the brands. I, I, I was into it at the time. Toshiba certainly had them, but they and Amstrad uh, came along. Commodore, that's the one they were into it. Just think how we've come from that and into the dot-com booms of the 90s and the social media from 2000 onwards. And then we're really racing into a revolution, which was very much how scribing had got to by the time it was 8th, 9th century. Of course, we're talking about from 1980, we're talking about 40 years for the digital. Um, with there, we're talking about 400 years, uh, slower transformation. Uh, anyway, I, what was revolutionary about this was the fact that it was language and symbols that were getting archived. It wasn't just the memory of what was being said to you. They were actually being archived. And this is where the Ormstones really came in, uh, the archiving did start very much uh, on the stones. Let's bring the stone up. And this is a pig stone, so it wasn't just the Orm. This was another language of symbols that uh, had come fr uh, from the influence of the Welsh up into Scotland, especially uh, in the northeast of Scotland, which I'll show you later. But uh, the scribing started to get onto parchment, of course, and, uh, and uh, onto paper. So, uh, this was a huge revolution in itself. So this was a time when memorized old language was finding its way onto symbols, which was quite something. And it was ordered into linear formats. If you look at this page, everything suddenly, where we have sound, which to me, when you're telling a story, you're telling stuff 
in a cycle, in a spiral, and there's there's no beginning or end. It tends to sort of keep evolving, like the weather, like the seasons, uh, through the year, like the months, like the moon. And suddenly, all that changed into this linear way. Of course, in China and Japan, they were going up the uh, they were going up the vertical. Uh, this uh, suddenly going on the horizontal, and I think that in itself, that simple thing, uh, is quite uh, dramatic. But the old one was a bit different there. Uh, the monk scholars, they had their Greek and Latin-based uh, scribed alphabets. But um, what about everybody else? The rustics, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the rustics or the peasants. The peasants from the Paganus. Uh, Paganus, which is really the Latin name that they said. Uh, the pagan people, or as the Danes and the Vikings would say, heathen people. I actually adore that heathen name. I'd rather be known as a heathen rather than a pagan uh, myself. Anyway, it seemed to be they only had this uh, language of straight line carving skills, and they could do these wonderful straight lines. Um, so how do they put order and sound into their straight line connect collections? Uh, I'm going to say a bit about that shortly. Anyway, uh, who we got on board? I'll take a break uh, from that uh, for a moment to see uh, what you. I see there's a few people joining in there. Shell, uh, how are you doing? Great to see you here. And uh, who we got here? Leslie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much. Leslie uh, joins in on the OM. He, he definitely has a fascination. He could probably give this talk now. Uh, so thanks very much here for be, uh, being here, Leslie. And we, uh, Donna, I've actually met one of the stones when I was there. Well, I've got a little wee secret. I've got you by a stone a bit later on. Very lovely photo, and I hope you don't mind, Donna, but it's going to be uh, very relevant for what I have to say. And even Claire's joined in here because she's had her internet down. So uh, uh, hello, Claire. Everybody say hello to Claire. I'm delighted that she's online herself as well. So let me... Um, let me uh, continue on with this because, as I say, what I've done, I'm feeding so much stuff. I've got loads and loads of uh, pictures on this. And I haven't got the videos this week because the other sessions, there's a lot more interaction and there's a lot of videos from people. But this time, this is sort of very much, I suppose, in lecture mode. But thank you for making your little contributions. Ask away with your questions. And... Uh, We'll get through this somehow, some way, and I trust you'll continue to find it interesting. Now, what uh, always baffles me is how oral sounds are made into symbols. I'm always bringing this up um, because it's just a non-ending fascination for me. And uh, I often discuss how a short story can get wrapped up in a single Gaelic, Gaelic, Irish word. Uh, and recently I was uh, in a, uh, quite a, a discussion with a few people about the a word that I understood, and I wasn't sure about how it's spelled, and it was because I've seen the spelling, kabla. And I knew kabla, and it is a very expressive thing. Kabla was, when we lived uh, in the Inner Hebrides, Isle of Mal, kabla was said uh, and this time of year, you know, the storms are coming in off of the Atlantic usually about now or will do in the next couple of weeks. So when they swell, especially the swell and the seas whipped up and 
the waves are huge and the wind is there. And the air is usually quite mild and quite warm at that time. So it's really telling the story about that condition. It's about a condition. And it's all done with this one word, kabla. And that, that actually has a story, that word, kabla. What it's talking about, um, you might be familiar with uh, in Ireland, the dagda is sometimes known as the doida. And in Ireland, we have the kayak, we have the hag. Now, for some reason, uh, the doida in uh, Scotland, in the west of Scotland, changes gender. She is a hag, a woman that's inside the mountain. And uh, they do have the word kayak in places uh, because we've got a kayak reckon who, with the whirlpool, might be familiar with north of Durham. But in the Berg, for instance, which is a wonderful peninsula of, of layers, a fascinating place to go with loads of waterfalls, we have the kayak that lives in there. So they say when you say kabla, it's saying to people that the, the doida, the, uh, the kayak, the hag, has come out into the sea and, the, and she's really warm. She has the hot womb. And, and as she gets into the sea to bathe herself, the hot womb warms the sea. And because it warms the sea, the sea then gets rough. And as it gets rough, all of the dormant souls that are in the sea on the way to Tirnanog are now dancing. And it's their dancing that causes the waves. It causes the wind. And that's all expressed. That entire story is expressed in one word, kabla. Let's see if I can get it up for you. There's two spellings. The one on the right is the one that I was familiar with. Someone, it was actually a traveler that spelled that out for me. And the one on the left is the one that we're in debate. debate. So they're kabla. So what's that got to do with Owen? I just thought it would be interesting, but to me, it's lovely. How do you translate uh, that story? How did that story and that condition get translated into that one word, linear word, Kabla, uh, and, and that's uh, that's the actual point uh, that uh, really fascinates me a lot, and it's continued. There'll never be an answer to this, but it's just I find uh, very fascinating. Um, so you know, when we do linear language, there's one thing that's obvious is that um, we when we we really focus on things, don't we? When we write sentences, it's about things and what we're doing with things. In oral language, there wasn't, at the time of the oral language, there wasn't so much a sense of ownership. I don't think the concept of ownership was really in the minds of many people at that time. Certainly business and trading was being done by some people and they would start be thinking about the concept of ownership because they were seeing acquisition actually happening in their lives. But for regular people, they're responding to the seasons and surviving. So it's not about ownership. It's about the conditions of what's going on around them. That's what they want to talk about. That's what they want to relate to. So um, how do you put that into a linear language of things? Deep mystery. Anyway, as uh, going, on, uh, going back to the stones, one thing about uh, stones, I haven't got any actual physical examples, not very good ones anyway. But it starts, look, on this case, look at the right here. It's on the edge of the stone. And you start from the bottom, you work upwards. And if you haven't really said all you wanted to say, you go across the top and you come down the other side. I think I might have one stone that does a bit of that. Is that one here? Oh, you can't see it. No, I'm going to have to talk a bit more about that one. Anyway, that's, that's how it's done. 
but what is being said uh, on these stones? Um, before I talk about the stones and where they come from, uh, I'm going to stay on exploring uh, what was actually written to them. And academic people, they seem to believe that uh, there's two types of ornstones. Of course, academics, they have to kind of have cut stuff in the middle. They've got to have the boxes and the pigeonholes. So they have one pigeonhole for the orthodox ornstones, and then you've got the other pigeonhole for the uh, scholastic, as they call it. Now, the orthodox, that's the one that I've been talking about. It serves the most mystery, and it's a way of trying to create order out of unknown origins. That's the way I see it. And the stones that seem to host the, the own spellings of, they seem to host names. Those earliest ones, early medieval, even pre-medieval, they seem to host names. But the spellings confuse people, especially ancient linguists, because they don't exactly follow Latinized translations that the scribes are trying to do, and even the people, the sculptors, who have been learning Latin and Greek and trying to apply the stones, even they can't quite do it. And to us looking at these stones and what's written, it all seems to be very gobbledygook. Now, there is speculation, and I think this is an obvious one. I talked about archiving. Oral language was really down to the phillies, the people who were kind of in the community to memorize family lines, family incidences, and pass them on word for word and took years. Oh, goodness me. Who's got a memory now who thinks they could be a filet? Well, uh, the one thing that I find is watching a textbook. Can, I just cannot memorize from a textbook. But if I have a picture and I remember stuff, I can remember by pictures. I have no idea how these fillies work. Anyways, the speculation of these ornstones were carved so that something would last, not just through the lives of people at that time, but would last through many millennia. Why did they want to do that? And I think this is the key to why there's ornstones. And really, it's only our own imagination and speculation, I think, that can tell us the story of why did they want to keep these words, especially names, that would last for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And one of the questions is, were there memorials to people? I think that's the key. If they got a name that's going to be archived, that's a memorial, a cenotaph even. Were these people esteemed? Uh, there is question, were these stones once gravestones? I don't think so, because I don't think I know of any instances where all have actually got bodies around them that seem to be somehow related to the stone. Yes, they found bodies near Orm stones, but somehow they can't relate to the naming of them to the stones. I think this is something completely different. Two instances in the same location. So was it where they, uh, is it a cenotaph to celebrate their passing wherever they've been passed or dead? Or is it a cenotaph or some kind of monument to celebrate the deeds of the people that are on the stones. But then why is the Maka there? Why is it sons? Uh, one of the things I tend to think of, and people who said they feel a lot of energy, some people when they go up to the old, especially these early medieval stones, the Orm stones, they feel some sort of sense of energy they describe, similar to what they feel if they go into a stone circle 
or if they go to a standing stone or into a cairn. Is it because they sense the gatherings? Was the purpose of these stones for the Orm uh, to be points of gatherings for some reason? And if there were gatherings, I'm inclined to think that's because of something to do with the deeds of the person and perhaps where the stones were originally put up, that's where the deed took part, place. But unfortunately, as I'm going to be talking about shortly, most of the Orm stones are not actually placed where they are originally put. So that's going to confuse us even more. Uh, and another thing is, is um, are these uh, stones there to haunt? You know, here's one in the British Museum. I've got. You can't read it very well. It's dark, but that's regarded there as a monumental uh, stone. Um, but uh, there we are. <laughs> there we are, Donna. Uh, Donna absolutely loves this. Um, um, Ballinavor, uh, oh dear, I'm forgetting the name, it's down there on the um, Barra Peninsula and it's not far from the Barra Stone, uh, the Kayak Barra Stone. Bally, you'll be able to say name. Someone put it up, it's, uh, I've just totally forgotten the name. I keep seeing Bally something vain and I should know. I haven't been there for years and that's enormous. And that to me is a cut stone. I'm going to talk about this. Some are cut stones, some I think are even more uh, ancient stones. But um, is that haunting? The other question is, is that a haunting stone? Uh, was the big stones put there uh, uh, to haunt tribes desiring confrontation? Were they intimidation stones? They were put up by perhaps another clan or family or tribe saying, look, we're strong too. This is what we can do. And go away. So almost like a warning. And um, it, Somehow, I think these stones are a bit like flags are today. Uh, every family, tribe, and clan, uh, they seem to have some kind of totem. Um, so I think I'll go on to totem pictures now. They seem to have some kind of uh, totem uh, to communicate their presence, uh, to somehow communicate their significance. And uh, and there's, these are, even from medieval times, you get these type of things. It's, it's, to me, it's more than a, a person's presence. It's, look, look, our great hero, our great person of deeds is still present. And if you dare come near us, he will haunt you or she will haunt you. And of course, it is mainly he's, uh, unfortunately. Um, so it's communicating the presence. And in some ways, the position of these, uh, these stones, they could be, like the ancient form of an air code, a postcode, or a zip code. That's another thing. Maybe they're not confrontational. Uh, maybe uh, they're just to tell people where they are. Yeah, and uh, the names of the people that uh, were ch are chieftains or of importance to that area. So if they can read a name, oh yeah, we're all, we're we're near the family, we're near the clan, we must be at the right place. So were they mapping stones? That's another person uh, a theory as well. Or, as I say, is, are these stones a demonstration of strength? And even a kind of boundary warning, approach with caution and respect. And with the later, I tend to call them uh, pissing stones. I'll bring this up because I nicknamed these. These are some of the uh, Orm stones that's um, at uh, Adair, uh, in the grounds of Adair Manor. Oh, is it Adair Castle? I'm not sure. And uh, they're kind of not far away from the golf course and beside a very pretty wood. Now, this is a collection of stones. 
And this is something as well, uh, a bit like flags as well. I'm going to be talking a bit about this. Why a collection of stones? These stones here, they've got here at Adair, have come from various parts of uh, Cork and Kerry and Limerick, what's now Limerick. Why were they all collected up here? And I call them uh, pissing stones because it reminds me of the reason that dogs, foxes, and other animals, they pee on trees, stones, anything upright. So I call them pissing stones as the OM. Was it, again, the marker of territory and a warning? This is our territory. We pissed on them. Only our clan has pissed on them. Go away. Was, there, was that uh, a reason for the stones? And the earliest I know, really, of that legend, and I've come up with some sessions, and I will do this in more detail, was uh, the, this tree character, half-tree character, Billy. Uh, he was the uh, grandfather of the sons of Mill, uh, the father of Mill, who was said to be half-human and half-hazel. Uh, and Hazel was where the wisdom of the mill came, because they were tree people. And this is a reason it's said that the mills and the Malaysians were tree people. And when they came over to Ireland, they were up against the Tour de Dan and, or, and, and remains of Perbold, who were farming people. They had cleared forests, and they had uh, cleared areas. They had settled farming. But these were people that did do farming of a source, but it said they were tree people. It was them that brought the Breton law. It was them that brought the tree language. And I think this is very much the important part. The Billy tree, each of the clans starting uh, from the Malaysians, they had their Billy tree, which was their mother tree, the very important tree, usually an oak or an ash or a major apple tree. I don't think I've got any uh, Billy trees here, but I think I'll come up with this one. Um, there we have a very, forget, it's a stone I saw by a, a biggish uh, tree. And I, Anyway, uh, to move on from that, um, that uh, the, what used to happen with these uh, billy trees was that uh, the tribes would have their billy tree, but other tribes would try to invade and cut it down. They would even, not only just cut it down, they would try and dig down to the roots and pull the roots up uh, to take it away. And what what an effect, what a demoralizing effect on a tribe that would be, that their mother tree has been taken away by another family, another clan, another tribe, and as if suddenly their connections are lost, and the tribe would feel weakened, lost, and they would submit to the ones probably that took the billet tree, totally demoralized. And that was the effect. And I think the, the Olmstones, may somehow have developed from those billet trees. That's just one theory. And as I say, a lot of these stones, these are Adair ones again, they're not in their original locations. Some of them have traveled quite far. Did they get here because there were tribes or people that went invading places of Cork and Kerry, uh, Limerick, wherever, and they would grab their stone, their own stone, uh, away from its position as as a kind of demonstration. Oh, we're stronger than you, that you got this bowl protector. Look, we can take it away. So in a way today, it would be the same effect, I think, uh, if a flag was taken away. Uh, and, and some groups, um, as I say, these are collections uh, that uh, have been, uh, this is, hey, the Adair one is a huge collection. 
uh, I don't know if they were seized or whether it was a whether there was a friendly arrangement because another huge collection is I'm probably got a picture coming up soon is the corridor of stones in Cork University and they picked up stones from around the country and they got this great corridor where the public can go and it's just a whole corridor of Orm stones both sides and uh, they come in different forms some of them are obviously very ancient stones some are modern cut stones and then there's this Surprising, there's Orm on a, a quartz stone, a milling stone. Uh, that's in the corridor as well. Unfortunately, I don't have a picture of that. But uh, it seems where there's stone, there could be Orm, uh, almost like a type of uh, graffiti. And uh, there are uh, collections uh, on the grounds, as I say, at their manor, I've got them there. Um, <clears throat> now, beyond that, uh, this is the idea of seizing something kind of went uh, beyond there. Um, uh, do I have a picture of it uh, as well? I hope. No, I don't have the picture up of it. I, I should have. It's kind of escaped. Oh, there it is. Um, one thing that's famous is that it evolved from the stones, stealing these stones. And of course, stones evolved into scribing. And as I mentioned earlier, the scribing went on to parchment, went on to paper linen paper and you've got these annals and uh, what perhaps one of the most famous is this one here the Cuthag and this was the book that was awarded back to Columkeel this was the one where he was brought to trial in Tara uh, the first copyright trial ever known but uh, because of his agreement to go and convert uh, the troublesome pigs to <laughs> uh, in the west of Scotland this is how storytellers tell it. Anyway, convert them to Christianity. Uh, the 2,000 souls, convert them there uh, to make up for the 2,000 souls that were lost in the Battle of the Books uh, below Ben Bourbon near here. So uh, he got awarded back the Catholic. But what happened was he was part of the Northern O'Neills. And this Catholic uh, got inherited by the O'Neills, the, the uh, uh, being in the north, being Donegal, they became from the Neils, the Neils to the Donneels, and from the Donneels as they got over to Scotland, they were the MacDonneels and then the MacDonalds, and, and so it goes on. But they still got into battles because they were in always in disputes with the West, in disputes with the South, and so before, when they uh, went in battle, uh, their scribe, their bard, uh, said would have this Catholic, and he would walk around uh, what would you call them, army, uh, militia, whatever. And he was saying he would walk around uh, carrying this book and it had these studs that you can see on it. And uh, that's, they reckon the Catholic would protect them because it had a uh, great effect on Colin Keel. So again, it was something they had grabbed that no one else could have as a Catholic. And the Book of Kells uh, kind of was uh, treated in the same way as well, all of these great books, uh, they weren't exactly read. They were almost like the bar of gold of the monastery. And uh, if they could be seized from the monastery by the Gallic chieftains, that was definitely collateral that they could uh, uh, they could use uh, for bribing. They could actually use to pay off debts. They could use it for exchange. Uh, there is a word, and I haven't come to. But anyway, something. Uh, they, they had that they could trade with, very, very, very wealthy. And then, funnily enough, the same thing uh, happened uh, with harps. 
the best example of that's the Brian Brew. So we moved on because um, the scribing stuff, it went on to the Bards and the Bard Harpers. And then you've got this in the Trinity College, uh, the, the uh, Baru Harp, which actually was made a long time after Brian Baru. And we've got a harp session, Sunday session in November. And I'll, I'll introduce with the story of this. But uh, with this, um, it was made in 1220, obviously, a long time after Brian Baru. But it was dedicated to him. And, uh, but it was uh, made for a guy called uh, O'Brien. It's the O'Brien Harp. And uh, he didn't have it very long, only a year or two. And it was sent off uh, to Scotland, um, somewhere uh, in, near the Trossachs, a clan there, uh, to try and get the release of a murder O'Daly, or O'Daly of Lissadell. And uh, he was wanted back for a trial because uh, when he was in Ireland, it said that he killed off a, a tax collector. Uh, what was a tax collector back then? Because people didn't have money in their pockets, but they just took cows and chickens and milk and stuff. And uh, so as soon as this tax collector got uh, killed, uh, off he went uh, to Scotland. And, um, and so uh, the story gets mixed up there. Did he actually go off with the harp or was the harp behind? It's really mixed. Well, I have a test. Anyway, the, uh, the story is that the, the brew harp was said that they would trade it. That the, Scotland could have it for their barbs as long as they sent O'Dowley back for his trial. Anyway, the, uh, the harp actually went over to Scotland. Um, it was uh, Alwyn II, who was kind of, like, I think, the third High King of Alba, of Lennox, uh, which is around Loch Lomond, and, uh, and descended from Alwyn was Richard the Lionheart, the Earl of Huntingdon, and of course the Earl of Huntingdon was uh, Robin Hood. So there's a whole wonderful chain of stories uh, from that. Anyway, the harp got over that. And uh, so uh, O'Dally, oh, this is great. He got he got the harp and he got into such good relations and he actually took it on crusades. They never got it back to Ireland. So he went on the, a couple of crusades and like the Catholic, like the Olmstone, it was like a protection. You know, this is our strength. This is the spirit of strength. If they got the, uh, the Brew harp, the O'Brien harp, and the bard went round three times, they will be defended out in the Crusades. Uh, eventually, uh, he came back, and O'Dally actually came back uh, to Ireland, and there was agreement that uh, uh, he wouldn't be tried for killing off the tax collector. So it was back in Ireland, uh, all without the harp. He had to leave the harp behind in Scotland, but he was allowed uh, back. But there's a whole long story. Henry VIII ended up getting it. Henry VIII gave... Uh, the harp to one of the lords uh, in Ireland, and so it stayed in Ireland and eventually got itself to Trinity. Anyway, I've gone way off the stone, but it's just to illustrate the strength of the stone as being we are powerful. The stone is of our power in some way. Anyway, let's see what you're having to say with that. Uh, let's have a wee break from that. Oh, uh, who we got? We got Sherry. Thanks very much for tuning in. Lovely. <laughs> and there's Donna. She's kind of amused by the pissing stones. And uh, are the stones near ley lines, uh, Lema? I think um, I'd have to go uh, into a whole session about ley lines uh, because some people, and I did this when I was uh, young. Excuse me a moment. 
I was, I've said this on Sunday sessions. I was mad on maps. And uh, as soon as the family were into uh, dowsing, they were uh, using pendulums. And uh, I got into charting very early age, into astrology, weather charting, and maps, ordnance survey maps. And you would hold the pendulum over the maps and see where the pendulum went and then draw a line. And um, surprisingly, when you drew a line, there was all these sites were pretty much lined up and it could be standing stones, holy wells, fairly modern churches, uh, cairns, and they seem to be on the line. So this is how people drop these maps of ley lines and the crisscross. But uh, in the sort of more mature years, and I've explained it in my Bathing in the Phase Breath book, uh, how it comes about, is that uh, I look at this uh, in a very different way now. Um, in The first thing is, what is there in nature that's in a straight line anyway? And uh, I think this is a very key point in the orm because we're talking about translating this cycle, uh, seasonal, conditional language into something linear. And linear uh, is something that was very important to the Romans, everything, they wanted everything kind of linear, didn't they? Even the Latin and the Greeks as well, just how do you put everything linear? Because when you got something linear, uh, that's when you can create order, that's when you can create doctrine. And so it's taking natural forms and compartmentalizing it in some way and my feeling on ley lines, and uh, I'm not going to go into the full story of how I got to this. To me, ley lines are kind of a human ambition. And uh, there's also some ancient stories I've covered with this because the ones, and it's connected with going back thousands of years with the Cairns. Uh, the Cairns were built and they were celebrated. I'm trying to find a way of keeping this very short. But Cairns were bone banks because uh, people, they adorned their ancestors' bones. Where there was uh, the woodland and, and the forest tribe, they always believed that their ancestors were in the water and they were in the weather. But when you got the, I suppose, the Tour de Dan and, and uh, the farming tribes, they had a reverence for the bones. So these Cairns like Karakil and uh, Caramore, uh, they would have pots full of bones. And so certain times of years, there'd be a reverence. The trouble is uh, uh, with that is that these people ended up having to be on the move because as the population grew and the uh, yields also were lower, they found that their cattle would wander off and the cattle would wander off into a straight line. And uh, so they decided it was really it was said to be the women that stayed behind with the bone banks. It was the men that went off to be nomadic, following the cattle. and. Uh, that would have uh, developed straight lines as well. Now, that's the story I picked up here, but I actually picked that up first in Upper Michigan um, and uh, at a, the Hiawatha Festival there. And I heard it from the uh, native people there. They said that this is, how, this is what happened with the buffalo. They had their sacred spaces, but the buffalo were always on the move. And uh, the connection between their sacred spaces, they were actually purposely built there because that's where the buffalo moved between. And so, of course, they were very sacred. It was energy. It was um, how they got their food supply, because this is where the buffalo went. And over here, it's where the cattle went. So that's, that's my take, again, on um, ley lines. Anyway, that, that should be another Sunday session.
But where did the stones uh, for the orms, uh, where the orms were in, where did they come from? And I'm trying to get uh, my mouse into this to get some pictures. Where on earth did they come from? Um, now, uh, here's one. This is a stone that's quite near. Uh, the stones, well, going back here to uh, the lovely Donna picture. Oh, no, it's not Donna. That's uh, <laughs> that's one where Donna hadn't quite arrived yet. Anyway, it's the same boulevard. Oh, whatever the name is. Uh, down uh, in the um, Bear Peninsula. Uh, the ones that were purposely used for carving, they were thin. And that's a thin one. That's tall. So they seem to have been quarried from somewhere. I don't know where the stone for this one comes from. If you actually go there, the farmer can actually tell you where it came from, but I forgot. Uh, he's very well up on uh, how, how the stone. He can tell a few stories on it. So they've been quarried for purpose. And you got the stones, uh, you got the carving on the left of that one. But a lot of the stones uh, with the almond, they seem very thick and chunky. And this is one that's near us that is very thick and clunky and uh, perhaps these ones were not quarried but were established stones that were used as standing stones they go back thousands of years they might have been relics that were here from when the melting of the ice age happened and it ripped the ice age itself it was like two miles high uh, and when it melted it ripped stones uh, away from the earth and that became an incredible resource for making a lot of these ancient cairns, circles, or whatever they got. Uh, but some were quarried uh, with the tools. So maybe some of these that have been carved on were from orthosat stones, from collapsed cairns and tombs. As I say, in the corridor of stones in Cork, there you've got the, uh, the milling stone that's got, <laughs> and it's an ancient milling stone. It's, uh, it's about 3,000 years old, and it's got orb on the milling stone. Uh, so was that converted for purpose? Anyway, um, again, this sort of emphasizes strength and their strength totems. And this one's interesting nearby because it's the only one I've seen. That's actually a, a well. That was once a holy well, but it's kind of one of those that's got lost. You might be able to see that hole uh, to the right of that picture. And that is uh, that well. That's the only one I've seen that's by well. And of course, trees, uh, the rag trees, the clouty trees, they have a reverence to that well because they're there to call up the fae, the she. And if they are not there, maybe the fae and the she won't turn up. So those are, are quite power symbols as well. <coughs> so to other people, they see something like this. It seems incredibly sacred and part of their ancestral spirit and connection. And I can understand why, because talking about the farming tribes and how they look to their bones in the the earthenware pots. Uh, that's a connection they had to spirit. That's the way they tended to uh, look at it. So when they're feeling that, I don't think it's anything to do with the own writing. I think it's to do with the source of the stone or more likely the position that those old stones might be in. Anyway, I'm going to explore a lot more of that within uh, all divination, which is going to be next month, I think. Anyway, to me, uh, with the tree and water folklore passion that I have, uh, it's the tree and water to me that is the connection to the sea, she, the fey world, folklore. Stones to me tend to be more images of vanity. Uh, that's what tends to be 
uh, in my belief system. Um, I, I, I think they're there. My perception is trees, you know, to put these up or to put where they came from, trees needed to be cut down. And sometimes water needed to be diverted to establish stone structures uh, because it, they needed water uh, somehow in, to be present, maybe for stone movement. But I think even if it was just to quench the thirst of those moving the stones, but trees were cut down, water was diverted. So I question the san uh, sa sacredness of that because it's meddling. It's meddling for a purpose. And as if these stones were put up as a reverence to, to a hero, uh, as a reverence to perhaps scare people away, uh, and even as a flag, to me, that's vanity. That's the way that I tend to uh, look at that. Uh, so are these... Uh, the question there, there is, are the ormstones vanity? You know, when, when a tree falls, it's quickly replaced, but when a stone is cut from the earth, it doesn't grow back again. And the thought of that, when I think of that, I, personally, that pains me a bit. And that's what, uh, more and more I think about that, I think more uh, in the sustainability. Anyway, I do feel that a lot of the ormstones, uh, that, uh, like the one that was shown here, that they were, their stones had somehow been recycled. I don't think they were deliberately quarried. Not Most of the Ulm stones that are in Ireland, I think, are recycled stones. There's a few medieval times uh, they were quarried um, for the Ulm in purpose. Now, I think I'll, um, this is one actually, oh, what's it called? Bista. Bista, this stone I'm showing you now. And that one is up at... Uh, it's between Ballinar and Ballycastle in Mayo. Uh, you take a side road, you go off this most um, a huge, lovely white beach. Uh, I'm trying to think of its name now. And it's on the way to there. There's hardly anybody ever there. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, it's worth going to. It's just a massive beach in Mayo. And it's, it's between Ballinar and Ballycastle. I might think of the beach a bit further on, but uh, you'll pass uh, a pathway and a sign to get to this. And this is definitely a stone that was there. It's on the way to the Cady Fields, and it's definitely a, an ancient stone uh, that was carved on. And that one, I think the lettering goes up and back, uh, down and around again. Um, I know there's a lot of writing on that one, um, B-Star. Anyway. I'm going to introduce the transition from tree language to warm now a little bit of that. And uh, let's go back to see. Uh, there's a nice few of you on today. Uh, there's Lynn who's in here, uh, just as we're talking about, just tuning in. Of course you're tuning in. Thank you, Lynn, because I'm going into the tree language now. Great. Lynn is absolutely wonderful uh, connection to the tree. She's been very involved with the Clonmel uh, Apple Festival was on last week for those you uh, watched um, and she visited the Dingle Peninsula Barry Barrington Museum again. I don't know why there's a huge I think there's a huge concentration because people haven't taken them away out of superstition uh, today and I'm going to show a map a bit later on uh, there seems to be the highest concentration of the Olm stones in Cork and Kerry and also uh, in places where there's a very active Norman medieval presence, such as in parts of uh, alongside the Shannon uh, in Ross Common is uh, one area. 
and in the whole area around uh, Kilkenny and going down uh, in that area, that medieval area, going down into uh, not so much Carlow, Kilkenny. What we got south of Kilkenny? I should know, but geography a bit better, going towards Wexford anyway, maybe over to Tipperary. But you've got, in the medieval areas, you've got a good, still got a good old presence. Not so much in Donegal and Ulster, very, very few there. And there isn't much around here either, and I pointed one uh, nearby. Um, well, now what's that? Uh, you are styling. I styling. I want that. Ad. Uh, yes, this is. This isn't Sunday sessions. This is a. This is a fashion show. <laughs> I'm just uh, babbling away. I I will get a catwalk at some point. Brilliant. Yes. Great. <laughs> uh, lovely one, uh, Sherry. Thank you. Uh, let's get back to some pictures here. Right. Um, now, from storytellers, I've listened to. It seems, you might be familiar, there's a, an 18-letter um, language, uh, Gaelic, in Scotland. And I must admit, I, was, I knew more about that than I did before I knew about Orm. And there is a, a train of thought that um, that is older than the Orm. That was what the oral language was. And because it wasn't being written down, how do you have 18 letters? The 18 letters were trees. So it was really an understanding of the trees. And you couldn't exactly line up 18 trees in a line. You couldn't make a linear language. But there'd be reference to trees when you're trying to make an emphasis of a condition of a feeling. And that seemed to be how the language was put together. And so that's much older. And that was coming from the tree people, as I was saying, the Malaysians were uh, from northern um, Iberia, was said to be of tree people. And there's this mystery of how was it that their understanding of a tree language, of putting the feelings and uh, the conditions of each tree. And of course, this is where the divination has come from, because you put these feelings together, it's in a circle, in a cycle, and so people have put these together and sort of done an alternative astrology with this. And that's what I'm going to be covering in the next OM session more, so the divination. So anyway, you've got these uh, trees. They were transformed. How do you put these tree sounds, these tree conditions, how do you put them into a linear language? And um, so it was said that perhaps, um, here we go. I love this picture. Uh, that's, that's what people are familiar with. Uh, sort of do divination with these. Uh, so how? Oh, I don't know what that one is. That's, that's, uh, that's a bit dark. Let's leave that alone. But anyway, let, here we go. Here's a little charting for you of the 18 uh, Gaelic uh, letters. Unfortunately, they've done them in the way we recite school, A, B, C, D, E, F, blah, 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 which I believe they weren't done. I bet they were done in the same. Beth would have been uh, first. And you would have got Fearon, and you got Sally. You would have done it in that uh, the way that Ormer is recited now. But anyway, there's there, and I forget which ones are missing. There's two missing, isn't there? And I'm going to be uh, talking a bit uh, about that one. Um, but anyway, um, how was these listed with sounds? Obviously, it seemed that. In order to memorize, not only was it conditioned of each tree, 
it's uh, folklore that there was a different sound to each Orm letter. And at some point, some educated people put, took on the task of putting these sounds into symbols. So which symbols were first, the Orm lines symbols or the scribed Latin and Greek style that ended up in the annals? And that was that next picture is one of the annals. And this one is Gospels. Uh, not long ago was pulled out of the bog, as a lot of these annals were. They were pulled out of uh, bogs. Now, when I was on Iona in the 70s, uh, I was working on Iona. This is where I first really uh, came across the um, the first story of the Orm. I learned that the stories of the Gales meeting the Picts on Iona. And the tale included a folklore of the Picts having symbol language and the Gales having the oral tree language. And then the two of them emerging. And you might be familiar with this. This is another divination thing. And this is the trees trying to be put into a circle in order to create the language, I feel. So you've got the two merging. And when I heard the first heard this, the idea of this tree language merging, merging with a symbolic language, it made sense to me. And, um, and, uh, and it got involved in the uh, pig stones at a later date. I don't know if that's clear to you, but notice there is some orm on that merged in with uh, the some pig symbols. There's a diagram. I'll, I'll beg of you the diagram. There you go. And that's what we've got. You've got the uh, orm on the left. You've got these pig symbols. Uh, that's the stone itself. And that's just a translation on the left. But that's the shape of the stone. It was a broken up stone. That's where the cracks are there. And uh, it was scattered, and someone managed to put the whole thing together, which was quite a miracle. It's one of the best that we've got. We've got the pig symbols, which was the language in itself, which had that serpent, and then the Oum came. So it's, it's very symbolic of the merging of the two, why and how. Um, now, there is a modern, uh, there is a modern theory that uh, the Oum is actually the Druid language. Um, uh, so let's bring up some druids. Uh, there's there's some druids uh, talking uh, to each other in Oum, I assume. And uh, it's a hard one for me because I, I haven't really grasped what a druid is. Some of you have probably got a definition. You probably, but I've been amongst the sort of druid culture, but I haven't really got the grasp. What the heck is a druid? Um, a, a druid, a druid, druid. And the one thing that's for sure, Sure, is that word door somehow, I think, comes from that, uh, the door. And when we're talking of door, to me, it's entering down into the roots. And when you go down the roots, down below, say, take an oak tree, and it says there are many lives inside an oak tree, supposing you've got the roots and you go down deep, what are you going to go to? The tree is full of water, but the roots are going deep. Where are you entering with the roots? you're entering into the she-world. And so roots as well, uh, they were the source of the uh, Bran law. It doesn't seem it, but the Bran law was there not only to give a sense of order and a sense of being and a sense of sharing other people, but it's also the law that protects trees. And uh, But with the Bran law, it doesn't seem to connect with that whole Orm vanity of heroes. The one thing that you don't get is uh, it's equality, it's balance with the Brehon. So that's why I see 
a sort of a conflict. Anyway, the one thing, uh, there, there is a theory, and I can go along with this, that somehow the Druids were alchemists of sound. Uh, there's a quite modern looking. I don't think Druids went around with crowns like that, but he's got a wee angular harp, and that kind of makes sense. And because there was sound, they perhaps could organize sound into octaves. And this is where we, 18, you couldn't do octaves with. The Druids, I think, if they were into sound, they would understand the pentatonic. You know, pentatonic is very much a primitive sound sequence, a sound cycle, the five notes uh, in an octave. They could use the five notes. And there you've got the, uh, added two more symbols, and you've got um, two, um, you've got a train of thought on this. You've got these cycles of sounds, and this is where they could actually apply the OM sounds. Now, I can see this coming into play as the music of that came together with the orm, that it actually was a sound. And it wasn't a language. It's simply as if they had a possession of the, and an education of these 20 symbols for the four octaves, the pentatonic scale, five notes per octave. And then along comes this oral tree language, which was perhaps sung in scales when recited. Synthesize that and the tree language and there we have it. And we have it seemed in later medieval times, it, it, that's what it was. Just think of mass. Uh, it made me wonder if people in medieval times, was it that they sang everything? They didn't have a speaking language. They sang. And is that why mass, it sang? And is this why there's this love of the Psalms? It's singing. And there's a legend that the Orm was applied to pages of the Psalms. And this was the whole story behind Columkill, copying the book of Psalms that he got into awful trouble with, that perhaps he had found a book because it had some kind of ohm notation with it. I love that thing. Anyway, I've, uh, this is going on a lot longer than I anticipated, uh, although I had a theory. I've got Linda who's patiently working, at working. She's patiently behind and I was going to bring in uh, an addendum to the apples and as I'm talking about the association of trees uh, into the orm uh, and I, uh, through my mind I'm thinking of quirt, uh, quirt the apple and uh, and uh, well, I, you heard me about apples. So I'm going to bring Linda because she had this lovely poem and it starts off it's actually it drifts onto something else, like what I always do. But it seems so pertinent to the time. And I said, well, Linda, you've got to come on board and share this. We couldn't do this last week for some reason. Maybe I didn't get hold of her. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm going to introduce you to Linda Rosewood. And she's going to introduce the poem and share it with you. Thank you for your patience in hanging on here, Linda. Thank you. Uh, so Linda's been a great help uh, for years uh, with help when we've been in California, Claire and myself, I'm sure. Uh, she just endlessly uh, was helping us out uh, with tips. Uh, wonderful, generous uh, person, just this continual generosity. And has had challenging times herself. But she's just gone through it like a sort of a bowl of apples, I suppose. It's just always fresh, always crispy. And so I'll introduce you to Linda here. Hi. Oh, thanks, John. Um, uh, I missed the Apple session last Sunday 
because a friend of mine had had a 60th birthday salon at the same time. And I'm in Donegal right now. She's in California, but she had friends from all over the world giving her, um, her their birthday wishes. And I wrote this poem about being 60. The poem is called, 60 is an abundant and unitary perfect number. It is a craft we learn as children to peel and carve autumn apples into human features. By Halloween, brown cheeks dry up in furrows of winsome eyes and a wry smile. Girls think the apple doll faces are cute and will never be their own. My cohort approaches 60. 60! What a great number, I said to a friend, the favorite of ancient Babylonians. Look what happened to them, she says. 60. 60 so readily sliced up into ages and stages and minutes and hours. So sexagesimal. All those unfractional portions adding up to, our, to ourselves. 60. When we were young, we regarded old women and said to each other sagely, wisdom. If we saw the red-hot revolutionary budding with wet passions of her flesh, bearing unspeakable things, kind, joyful, and cruel, we said to ourselves, cute. Now we are 60, with seasons carved into our faces. We've crafted ourselves complete, blossom and core. Sorry, I had my mic off. Sorry, thank you very much. There was me talking away. I'm miming. I'm the mime. Thanks very much for that. I didn't. I was trying to avoid the echo because I had uh, echo challenges. Anyway, my mic's on. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was uh, saying, um, you know, that uh, you've got a challenge now, Donegal, being under uh, lockdown, and yeah. uh, I know the own is uh, stones are quite scarce in. Donegal and Ulster, even though there's a lot of carved stones uh, from the monastic. Are you familiar with any Orm stones when there's you get out and about? There's a stone uh, near us, us in the in, uh, Ards Forest. Of course, yes. But I, until I saw your talk today, I thought uh, Orm stones were pretty um, kind of sterile. And it just seemed like um, a cenotaph or someone tagging a stone with their name and saying, this is me. So I really appreciated the the talk today because I, I have a lot more uh, affection for them now, I think, especially since you connected them with the sacred trees. Uh, I, I Much better. Well, I'm going to be going more into the divination. I think I've done a tree one. I will do one. But to say this is a confusion. I, I, I'm being polite, I think, with this whole talk. Y yes, bottom line is I think they are sterile, and I think people are making more of them uh, than what they are. And I think the whole adventure with this is is 
is where they've been placed is got a heart and the trees. Yeah, I think it's in a way a transition from the spirit. It was almost like a transition from that spirit to our vanity, to our linear. So I'll go with your introduction, but it's, you know, what's behind that in some way when you see something that's linear and is on a page. I think you're like reading a book. You're reading a linear language. People don't like reading textbooks. But if they can read a book where it sets off their imagination and they get pictures in their minds, somehow they'll end up remembering that, but they won't remember the linear stuff. And as I say, I can't remember where the stones are. I can't remember what's written on the stones, but I certainly remember the experiences I've had when I've approached the stones. So that's uh, a lot to do with it. Anyway, I've been uh, going on a lot longer. I'm going to cut the rest of this uh, off. We're obviously going to have to do a part two on the stones, typical. There's a couple of things I'm going to close this off with. So thanks very much, and I'll contact you later, Linda. That's very kind of you. Thank you. And so that's uh, Linda there. Thank you. That was great. Now, the next thing. Oh, there she is again. <laughs> there, we go. Uh, there is a, a way and means of, uh, well, let's get me on and then I can, that's it. Thank you very much. Now, uh, one thing I'd like to introduce before we go, and this is a lovely novel thing, and I think you'll uh, enjoy this, is um, how do you do your own own translating? And I'm going to bring up a wee site and we're going to do something. Uh, I've not done this uh, on this sort of show uh, in this. So this is something you're very familiar with when you do Zoom, but I haven't been doing this. This is, let's see if I can get to it now for you. This is the Orm, this is a kind of an Orm translator. It's at uh, orm.co, I'll bring up a banner later. Um, now, how, what, you, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to see if I can get this full screen for you and I'm going to do something uh, with this. Right, um, now I should have shown you this uh, first. Let's go the other way. I wonder if I can unplug this for a minute. Okay, uh, just to show you it works. I'm gonna show you this thing. This is, this is something you're probably quite familiar with. Uh, am I upside down with it? No, that's it. People buy these sort of things as gifts. And this is what OM is to a lot of people. And now th this is going backwards because we've got home sweet home, this is where someone's got our Latinized language and they have tried to uh, do uh, some OM symbolism uh, with this. And uh, it's all going backwards because the idea was you went from the trees to the OM and then to a Latin. Anyway, they're novel and it's beautiful. And uh, take notice of the sweets there. That's quite a fascinating thing. So take that in mind. And I'm going to duplicate this uh, through this OM dot. Uh, if I can get back to it again, um, there we go. Where are you? The, I think that's it. Right, that's the uh, translator, and I'm going to do a wee thing with you, and I'm going to get it. Uh, is it full screen? Yes, it's full screen. Amazing. Right, I hope you can see this. Uh, I'm wheeling around on this one. So I'm going to use that translator and see if you work. Now, supposing I, it was home sweet home. So I'm going to put in home. There's home. And there's, a, there's the translator. And uh, have I spelled home right? Yeah. Look at that. First of all, it, it goes from the bottom to the top is the first thing you notice. And when I look uh, at this uh, stone here, it's exactly as it is on the stone. 
Now, uh, the sweet bit is a funny one. Suppose you put the sweet. What comes up? No J, W, or Y in the OM alphabet. So we got seat, seat. We haven't got the W. So what are we going to do? Because on this stone, there is obviously uh, five letters. What they've actually put in, because they couldn't got the sweet, they've actually put in uh, uh, an F. <laughs> uh, or it could be a V, so it's feet. <laughs> so that's, that's how they got around with it. Anyway, that's something for you to play around with. That's oom.co, and it gives you an oom transliterator uh, that you can have fun with, and you can start putting words in, and it's a great way you can learn the oom because all these uh, letters come up. And, um, and then uh, you can look at your uh, Tree Wisdom book and see what trees are we each of the letter i just think that's uh, a fun thing and uh, i hope uh, that's a nice novel thing for you to be demonstrating i hope that worked out okay for you it is a, a fun thing to do let's see what you had to say about that one <laughs> um lynn uh, love the thoughts um what she got here and your rendition thanks linda and as donna's got a big uh, thing here beautiful poem linda great uh great oh she's gone now uh i'll pass the messages on to you uh 60 was a magical year for you great donna thanks for uh yeah uh thank you lynn yes i had the microphone switched off as i say i didn't want echo uh i'm gonna get earbuds for next week i think something like that but thank you for that so uh listen i've got a couple more little things uh, to actually uh, show you because I've got, really got to wrap this up. Where are they? There's some. There's a map of uh, Ireland. You can see the clusters. I think if it's close up there, uh, it's not very good dots, but the clusters there, as I say, Cork, Kerry, and in Norman medieval times. What else have I got here in the pictures? Oh, that's the corridor of stones in Cork University, and then we have the. Um, uh, this is over in. Scotland, this is where you get the greatest cluster of the pig stones. Uh, Aberdeenshire, Moray, uh, Fife, uh, this sort of ruin. There is, they're elsewhere in Scotland, but this is the huge cluster up the coast in Caithness onto Orkney. The whole pig culture and the whole symbolism. But somehow, as I did show on the uh, stone that's uh, near Aberdeen, uh, the um, again, I'm forgetting the names. Uh, I've visited so many times. It's in sort of a council house estate, but it's beautifully put together. But the one where I showed you it had the serpent and the arm stone. Uh, something but, but something, brand but, brandy but stone that was. Uh, but you've got, um, uh, that, that's uh, sort of, that shows you a more recent post-medieval where they actually started putting the arm symbols onto the stone rather than down the sides on the edge. And then they started bringing in the, uh, uh, Christian symbolism. These are the post-medieval. So I'm going to do a part two of post-medieval uh, at some point. And uh, even got to the point when the Vikings came along, they joined in too. Here's a stone uh, here that's got the Viking sort of rune cuttings uh, along with some ohm. So it's got uh, quite uh, fascinating uh, here. As I say, unfortunately, De uh, Denise couldn't come, so I'm going to put, put her on uh, for another time. Um, I think it uh, really is, uh, I better get on with telling you what's coming up because next week uh, it's going to be much more interactive. 
we've got the Ahmed, um, Ahmed, Ahmed, isn't it? Uh, it's a herbaly session, and we're really going into the uh, Ahmed. I kind of um, I got to find out what we get, what we're doing ourselves. Um, I forget the the actual title for, from next week. Uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Oh, people are asking when, uh, before I get on to that, people are asking, when are you going to open those labyrinth gardens? And uh, the thing is, I don't think it's going to happen this year, unfortunately. And I don't think um, we'll be having the lighted labyrinth, although I might set up one walk around, but it's just so unfortunate. The limitations with the COVID. Uh, but next year, next April, we've got to do something to allow you back in and be here on Sundays at least. Uh, I must admit, any volunteers, we can do the COVID uh, separation uh, and uh, COVID. We can operate the, being COVID-wise here if anybody's volunteer. But I think we've only really got two weeks left that we can really do much uh, that can fit into the weather. And we're below average temperatures now, which is quite a challenge. And I'm going to be developing a self-service course. And this is... Uh, going like today, I've run out of time. I could have gone on for a lot more about the stones, but in the course, the stuff that I'm introducing in the Sunday sessions will be going a lot deeper. And the sponsors to the Labyrinth Gardens and these Sunday sessions, the course will be free to the uh, gift to the uh, sponsors. So it'll be free for them. And it's going to be called uh, She Trees and Water Folklore because the Sunday sessions really touch on these. So we're on the fringe with these stones. And the course will go into deeper into the themes and these stories. Uh, oh, and uh, for, just for Donna, really, I do have a poem called uh, Pissing Stones. How did that old stone arrive here? Fascinating notches, there to tell us something, and a dog lifting his leg to piss on it. Is that the mystery of these stones revealed? Nothing to do with sacred enlightenment, nothing to do with enforced ownership but a spot where a human pissed and erect a totem of his strength and claimed his presence of his tribe. Now, don't doubt that Ohm stones seen today are in the positions they were first erected. Maybe they're battle trophies, like seizing an opponent's flag. So coming up, as I say, is uh, we got next Sunday. Thank you for uh, hanging on that you do uh, with this ultra-long session. Uh, so next week is uh, Ermid, uh, her cauldron and folklore, and we'll have some herbalist guests uh, on for that one. That's the 4th of October. And then the following 18th October, going into inspired journalism and uh, native uh, poetry. There's someone worn out from there. Or oh, someone being inspired, uh, got into the tree labyrinth, laid down. I thought that was very symbolic of being inspired and then leaping up and and gently moving into some native poetry. Then on the 18th, I'm separating the water and fire dragons. This is going to be the fire dragons, serpents, and snakes as we're getting towards the Sawan. So we're going to have a great session of that one, probably have fires going. And then on the 25th, one I haven't done before and been looking forward to doing it, is the folklore of crows ravens and other corvids and i said corvids not other corvids definitely 
And it's 22nd, I should have a picture to follow up from here. It's the 22nd of November is the next OM session, uh, which will be the OM uh, divination. So really, um, is there any, uh, just give you another checking on what you had to say there. I hope uh, you've enjoyed this. And Lynn, fascinating. Uh, thank you very much. Resourceful. Thank you very much. Margie, thanks uh, very much. Margie, terrific uh, painter. Uh, try and get, uh, if there's an exhibition or festival somewhere, try and get to uh, see Margie's uh, art. It's absolutely wonderful. And I bet she could do a wonderful interpretation of the uh, own trees. Thank you again uh, to Linda Rosewood for being live with us today. We'll get Denise on as a, a kind of uh, intermission at some point. And uh, I'd like, uh, please keep commenting here, even if you're watching this after it's been live, because like the Omstones, we're an archive as well. I'm not wiping off or sending them anywhere. Uh, what I uh, really is time to tell you and, and uh, time to wish you and time to line up. <laughs> right. Uh, enjoy a safe week. Uh, keep it full of wonder, full of inspiration and celebration and enchantments uh, until we meet again next week for Elmed's Cauldron. So until next Sunday, do play well. And thank you so much for watching and keeping up and having interest. So bye.